All right, Revelation chapter 3, we're going to finish up with this series. Uh, we've been working on, I think this is the 17th uh, message that we've done on these churches. And uh, this will be the last one in this whole series. Uh, we're, gonna take the, uh, we're not going to take the next two weeks off. I won't be here the next two weeks. Brother Josh is going to fill in for me on Wednesday. So while we're gone, um, we leave on Tuesday, next uh, late Tuesday night. So... Um, Brother Josh will do next Wednesday and the Wednesday after that, and he's also going to be doing Sunday school. Brian's going to do both Sunday mornings, and then um, uh, Jason Brothers and John Mark Brothers, uh, my wife's brothers, are going to uh, do Sunday nights. So uh, it'll be good. It'll be good. You'll, you'll get a break from me for a while, and I'll come back ready to go. But um, we're going to get into, after these couple weeks of being gone, we're going to get into a series on the family. So. Uh, I think it'll be helpful for us as well. I did some of it. Uh, uh, I think it's getting closing in on two years ago now, um, but we've got a lot more here, and and uh, of course a lot of younger kids and everything else. It's always good to hear it again. Uh, so we'll we'll rework some of that and go, and go through some of that stuff again. But I'm looking forward to that. But we're going to finish this up tonight. Revelation chapter three and verse number fourteen. This is the message to the church at Laodicea, and we looked last week at the introduction that was given by the Lord to this church. And he says, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And so he is clearly establishing his authority as a faithful and true witness to tell this church uh, what it needed to hear. And I do believe that this, you know, I mentioned this last week that, you know, one of the commentators that I had read had, had suggested that possibly this, you know, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, well, this was not a real church, this was a church. I believe it was a real church, and that's why God is, is condemning them and, and uh, you know, getting on them in the way that he is. Uh, and, and as we look at some of these things later on, uh, we'll see that, but I believe that they had fallen into such a, a backslidden condition uh, that they needed some serious condemnation, and ultimately what they needed was repentance. And, and God speaks to that. Uh, the Lord tells them that that's what they need. But So what I want to talk to you tonight about is the weakness of the church at Laodicea. And we've got a, several different things here, but let's, let's go ahead and read through this entire passage first and, and just kind of get an overview of this, picking up in verse number 15. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would thou wert cold or hot, so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see." As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as also I overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, I think verse 19 is kind of the key when we're, when we're going to talk about this church being a real church. You know, God doesn't, you know, chasten. Uh, I mean, it's, he loves everybody, but it's not that he's going to chasten the unsaved. He is trying to draw them to himself. And so the ones that he chastens are those who are his children, right? You're not going to go, you know, you're not going to go whip somebody else's kid more than likely, right? And the reason why is because they're not yours. But you, you care about your kids and you love your kids and you make sure that you're going to do what's best for your kids. 
And that's what God does for his church as well. So the first thing is this. It was a deluded church. There was something that he talks about that was just nauseating about this church. Uh, its lukewarmness was sickening to the Lord. He, of course, he wants us to be hot rather than cold. But he said, I would rather you be cold than to, than to be lukewarm. So the first thing is the sickening compromise. Revelation chapter 3, and we're going we're gonna to skip around a little bit, but we're going to stay mostly in Revelation 3 tonight. But he says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou art cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, Laodicea had pretty much gotten to room temperature, right? Uh, have you ever tried drinking something at room temperature? Eh, sometimes it's okay, you know, water and things like that. But, you know, coffee, coffee is one of those things that you either drink it cold or hot. Who wants it lukewarm? You know, nobody wants it to be at room temperature. Uh, it's, well, it's just one of those things that you just, you can't, you know, you can't do it. And, and, and it, this church was the same way. They were neither cold nor hot. They weren't one or the other. And so I think what we can say about this church is that it was marked by complete compromise. Um, I think a perfect example of this, and we're not going to take the time to go through the entire story, you know it most likely, is the story of Lot, right? right? Lot had gotten that way in his life. Uh, the angels that visited Lot as a backslidden believer, and I believe that Lot was saved, and, and I mean, that's one of the reasons why, you know, Abraham was looking for 10 righteous. He couldn't find even 10 righteous, uh, but he found Lot and, and his wife and, and a couple of their kids that were willing to leave with them, Right? Uh, he was saved, but he was so backslidden. He was so far away from the Lord uh, that, you know, they came, the, the angels came. They came as close to impatience as angels could possibly come. But uh, even the citizens of, of, of Sodom detested Lot. You know what I mean? They allowed him to be, you know, to sit in the gate of the city, to, to kind of be one of the rulers in the city. But they didn't let him preach. They didn't let him talk about the things of God. Right? And he got to the point where he didn't even want to talk about the things of God, I think. And, and he lost his fortune in Sodom. He lost his family in Sodom. He almost lost his faith in Sodom. He finally got out of there. But that's exactly what we see here in Laodicea. Is the, the Lord says, I, I wish you were cold or hot. But you're right in the middle. You're lukewarm. And, and I just want to spew you out of my mouth. A little girl came home from Sunday school. Her mother asked her to say the verse that she had been learning in, in, in class, and it's, many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, that was the verse that she had been memorizing, but this little girl came home, and her mother asked her to, mem to, to tell her the verse that she had been working on, and it came out like this. She said, many are cold, and a few are frozen. Uh, and and a, 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 sadly, that's the way it is in a lot of churches today, you know? There would be some hope for Laodicea if it had been stone cold, but it was lukewarm. It was, it was stuck right there in the middle. And so to, to be neither one thing nor the other, to be completely compromised, was, was basically a condition that God was saying was without hope. Uh, they, were, they were lukewarm, and it was a sickening compromise. But we also see in verse number 17 a sickening complacency. The church at Laodicea was ignorant of the condition that they were really in, their true condition. And, and this is the faithful and true witness that is telling them this. This is something that they needed to hear. He says this in verse 17, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. What, uh, Laodicea had everything that a worldly church could desire. Uh, they had, you know, I can imagine that they had influential men in the city as deacons in their church. They probably had large if they had these back then, large bank accounts that gave them prestige at the bank. You know, they, they probably had 
the best location in town. They had the best choir in Asia. I mean, they had everything that a church could want, everything that a church could desire. Uh, I'm sure that they got the best of the best, you know, the, the most, uh, most well-known preachers to come through and preach in their church. And, you know, they, they had everything that they could want. Uh, it was a well-organized, well-oiled organization. Um, they were a fashionable, worldly church, but they were powerless. And that is exactly what we do not want to become. Amen. There's nothing wrong with having things that are nice. And, and I mean, look, you look at some of the churches around here, and I think that they would fit into that exact category. I mean, they got huge buildings. They got everything they could possibly want. But for the most part, they're powerless. You know, I'd rather stay a church of 50 people and have the power of God than to be a church of 5,000 and not have the power of God. And I don't know how large the church at Laodicea was, but I think that's exactly the condition that they found themselves in. They had everything. And it even says that, that I'm rich, increased with goods, have need of nothing. But they were powerless. The church at Laodicea was, was popular. They, were, they, were, they, were, they had everything going for them, but they didn't have the power. In fact, they even, they even bragged about the fact that they had all of those things. Right? You, you see that, you know, God says in that verse, because thou sayest, I am rich, increase with goods, have need of nothing. I mean, they were boasting. They were bragging on the fact that they had everything. And I think that's a perfect example of the present day church. And, uh, I mean, you can look at some of the churches in this area, but you just think about the churches across America. You see them on TV. You see them on the Internet. You see them, you know, maybe as you travel and things like that. But... Uh, they're proud about so many things, and, and they're things that we have to watch out for. Some of them, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you kind of a little list of things that, that we need to be watching out for that I think some churches get proud of, and not all of them are things that we, you know, th that are re even really a temptation to us, but we have things that we've got to be careful for, and I think some churches are proud of their fundamentalism. Right. They're correct in their faith, they're correct in their doctrine, they're correct in everything that they do. Uh, they can say everything just right, but there's they're as cold as ice. They're hard, they're as hard as clay. And that's, I think that's the problem, you know, in churches like ours that, that happens. Everything's right across the board, but they're, they're, they're cold. They're not doing anything for God. They get proud of their fundamentalism. I think some churches are proud of their exclusivism. We're the people. Truth is going to die with us. You know, that's what their mantra is. We, we have the truth, and it's going to die with us. They think that separation means isolation. You know, so they, they, they retreat back into their, you know, their make-believe world, and they, they ban contact not only with the lost, but even with other believers. You know, you're not like us, so we're not doing anything with you. Right. You know, you're, you're, you're a lost person. Church is not for the lost. Uh, and I'm telling you, this is a, this is a uh, contentious issue today. The church is not here for the, for the lost. It's here for the saved. So we're not going to preach the gospel at church. You preach the gospel at their doors. You preach the gospel out in the city. And we ought to be doing those things. But why does the Bible say go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in? Amen. If we're not asking the people to come in so that they can hear the gospel. Amen. Right? Yes, we ought to be telling them where they are. But, but the church is a hospital. Right? It's not here for, for only those who are saved and only those who, who want to talk about how good they are. And only those who, who, who already know Jesus Christ. Say, well, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, so this service is not for you. That's not what that's about, but they get, they get so proud of their exclusivism. Come, come out from among them and be separate. That's what the Bible says, but they take that so far that, well, we're completely separate from you. You're no, you're no good. You're not us, you know? They get proud of that exclusivism. Here's another one. They get proud of their ritualism. 
You know, they get, they get satisfied with all of the trappings of external religion. You know, um, all of the stereotyped form of services set in, uh, you know, prearranged rituals every year. I think I mentioned this, but Clarence Sexton just a few weeks ago when we went, to, went over to a little uh, thing that he was teaching, he said, you know, a, a lot of people talk about having 25 or 30 years of ministry experience when what they actually have is one year of experience 25 or 30 times. And that's exactly what happens so often in churches, you know? Well, this is the way we've always done it, so we're not going to change it. Well, wh what about starting this minute? Well, we've never done that before, so we can't do that. Well, what about this? Well, we can't do that. We've never done that before, right? He, uh, he also made the, made the statement, you know, if it ain't broke, break it. Because what happens is we get, such you know, we get to be such well-oiled machines that everything has to be done this way. And we, get, we really get proud of the ritualism. Some churches are proud of their rationalism. You know, they, they come to terms with the atheist. They've come to terms with the evolutionist. They've come to terms with, with even the communists and, and other people. They deny every doctrine of the faith to try to get along with everybody. And, and you know, I, I would say that that's probably not something that's necessarily a temptation for us, but it's out there. And there's a lot of churches that are doing that. You know, Rick Warren is, is one of those that's really well known. What did he write the book, The Purpose Driven Life, Right. And he was one of the first ones that, that was, well, we ought to try to bring all religions together. Essentially, we're all the same. No, we're not. Right. You know, yeah. now he's out there with the Muslims and the Catholics and everybody else and, and doing services together and having prayer services with the Muslims. They're praying to a completely different God than who we're right. praying to. Amen. Well, they just call him a different name. No, they're praying to a different God. And here you are on the stage praying with them, you know, and that's what I'm saying. It's not necessarily a temptation for us in this church, but if we don't watch out, you know, well, for the sake of, of coming together for our community, we need to have this service and, and we'll do it together. And, you, know, I don't, you know, we don't believe what the Catholics believe, but for the sake of unity, we'll come together. No, we won't come together because we don't believe the same thing. We're not worshiping the same God. They're not even, they're not even Christians. They call themselves a Christian, but they're not, they're not saved and on their way to heaven if they believe what the Catholics teach. And 99.9% .9 of them do, or they wouldn't be in that church, right? So they get proud of their rationalism. Well, well, in the end, we're all the same. We're all going to the same place. We're just taking different paths to get there. No, the Bible says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus didn't say, well, this is what I'm teaching, but, you know, other people teach on how to get to heaven, too. He said, no, there's only one way to heaven, and if you're not teaching that one way to heaven, then you're sending people to hell. Right. So I don't care what you rationalize. We're not the same. Amen. Things that are different cannot be the same. Amen. But churches get proud of that. Some churches are proud of their socialism, and by that I mean, you know, they have a social gospel. In other words, you know, and again, I mentioned this not that long ago, uh, that it ought to be the churches that are supporting the poor. It ought to be churches that are taking care, especially the people in their church, but, you know, people in the community who are, it's, 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 welfare is not the way that it should be done. The government's, it's not the government's responsibility to pay all of these people who don't have a job or who won't get a job uh, with welfare and all of these other things, these government programs and everything else. That's not the government's job. That's the job of the church and organizations like the Red Cross and all of that stuff. But I'm telling you, what happens is a lot of these churches get proud of their social programs. Well, we're going over to Africa, and we're building all of these wells, and we're going over to Haiti, and we're setting up a, you know, a medical tent where people can come. And, and, and that's great. Those are good things to do. But what happens is they do all of those things to the exclusion of the gospel. They're not, they're not giving them the gospel when they're doing it. 
And they come back and, well, we were able to dig this many wells and we were able to help this many people, you know, with, with this physical problem and that physical problem. Well, how many people did you get saved? Well, you know, I mean, it wasn't, you know, we didn't really get the opportunity to do it. Then why are you doing it? Amen. They're proud of their social programs, but if you're not using those social programs to get the gospel out, then you're failing in your duty. Amen. Some churches are proud of their ecumenicalism. You know, they, they want this big one world super church. And that's what guys like Rick Warren and, and uh, Joel Osteen and some of these guys, you know, they're not preaching or teaching anything because they don't want to offend anybody. And essentially, they end up offending everybody because those who believe everything they're saying are going to end up going to hell because they're not preaching the truth. Those who do know what, you know, what the truth is are offended because it's not being preached. And, and so, you know, they want a church that all the doctrinal differences are submerged at the expense of the truth and at the endorsement of error. Some, some churches are proud of their materialism. You know, money is the solution to every problem. And, you know, just throw more money at the program. Throw more money at this. Throw more money at that. And, you know, if, if we need to hire people that are more efficient, hire more people that are more trained. No, they need, we need the power of God is what we need. But they get proud of that materialism. In other words, these churches are prosperous. And, and this church here in Laodicea was prosperous materially, but they were spiritually impoverished. And they were lukewarm in their service to God. And God said, I want to spew you out of my mouth because of this, because of this sickening complacency. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17, because thou sayest, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The Lord warns Laodicea that this way of, of living, that this way of doing Christianity can only lead to one conclusion and that's that he will spew them out of their mouth. You know, it might sound harsh to, to call out some of these churches and some of these people who are out there doing this, but look what God says about them. Oh, yeah. He says, he says you're, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. It, it would be hard to find a stronger condemnation of any church or person than what God gives in this passage uh, to the church at Laodicea. Not because they weren't his church, not because they weren't having church, not because they had given up on God, but because they were doing Christianity without being hot, without really serving God, without doing it in his power. So to this deluded church, God gives a definite choice. The Lord sets the choice before this church. Are they going to elect God's dealings in grace or his dealings in judgment? We see that in verse number 18. So he, he counsels them to have a restoration of spiritual values. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. Look, it was very obvious by the verse before that that they had everything money-wise. They were rich, but they were rich in the wrong things. And so God says, you know, you, you say, I'm rich. I'm increased with goods. I have needed nothing. But you don't even know. That what you have is as absolutely counts for nothing when it comes to the things of God. So what you need to do, he says, is to buy of me gold tried in the fire. They were, this church was destitute of anything that had spiritual value to it. So There has to be a return to this gold standard, a return to God himself. Money cannot buy spirituality. Buildings cannot buy spirituality. Busyness and people cannot buy spirituality. That's something that we have to have individually. That can only be purchased by repentance and yielding to the Spirit of God. 
And that's what this church was lacking. And so he was calling them, he was counseling them to return to spiritual values. But also, the Lord sets before this church a restoration of spiritual virtues. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. This church needed true righteousness. They thought they had it, or they were at least pretending that they had it, but the world could see right through the materialistic finery. The church was actually naked, and that's what he says. That you're just, you're, you, you think that you have everything, but you actually have nothing. You think you're clothed in all these fine-looking everything, but, but you're not even wearing any clothes, right? I mean, obviously not literally, but you know the story of the, uh, the emperor's new clothes, right? We've all chuckled at that as kids. Uh, the emperor, you know, he, he, these, these, these people come in and convince the emperor that only the smart people can see these fine clothes. And they, they sell this to him at a very, you know, very expensive cost. But he's the king, and he doesn't want to appear stupid to these guys. And so he says, uh, well, go ahead and make me some of those clothes. And so they spend days pretending to make these fancy clothes on this loom. When in actuality, they're not doing anything. And the king sends over some of his servants to, to, to observe how they're doing in this process. And, and they get there, and of course, they don't want to look stupid either. And so they come back to the king with, oh, these, these clothes that these guys are making are just absolutely tremendous. They're beautiful clothes. And so it comes time that, you know, the day comes, and it's time for them to deliver these clothes to the king. And so they, they give this king these clothes. And of course, he pretends like he's putting them on, you know, because only the smart people can see them, Right. And, of course, the, uh, the servants that are walking behind him, they, they act like they're helping him put these clothes on because they don't want to appear stupid to the king. Well, if, if only smart people can see it, then we, we've got to make sure that we can actually see these clothes, too. And so the king sets up this parade, and he's going to go marching down the street and show off these fine clothes that only the smart people can see, right? And here he goes marching down the street wearing nothing, and a little boy that was in the crowd said, he's not wearing any clothes, you know, and, and, and the, of course, the emperor hears it, and you know, the whispers start to grow and spread until the, even em the emperor heard it. But, you know, uh, they, they kept up the pretense. Even the guys walking behind him were pretending that they were carrying the train on his clothes, you know. And that's exactly the church at, at Laodicea was just exactly like that foolish king. They were pretending that they were clothed. They were pretending that they had everything in order. And God says, you're naked. You don't have anything. You know, he, he, I have needed nothing, and you know not that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I'm counseling you, buy of me these clothes that are in, you know, this white raiment. No wonder the Lord demanded that they buy these clothes from him, that they, they had to cover the shame of their nakedness, right? And that's exactly what it looked like to the outside world. You know, everybody was pretending that this is Christianity. Everybody's pretending that everything's right and everything's normal. And finally, it takes somebody to stand up and say, he's not even wearing anything. What, what are you pretending of this for? And that's what God is saying. Buy of me white raiment. What does white represent? Purity, right? And, and I think there's something to be said for that in, in what he's saying. Uh, they, these, you know, uh, the purity that they were lacking in the church there at Laodicea. But I think even more importantly, the fine linen that was clean and white of the saints, Right when we, uh, I think some of these people in this church were not even saved. They had not even been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Right? What does he say? All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, because we can do all the good we want to do, but unless we've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then it all counts for nothing. 
So the Lord demands, he counsels them to a restoration of spiritual values. He counsels them to a restoration of spiritual virtues, but then he also counsels them to a restoration of spiritual vision. And we see that in, at the end of these, I counsel thee to, we read those other things, but he says, anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Now, worldliness always clouds our spiritual vision. And a lack of spiritual vision is serious. The Bible says in Proverbs, where there is no vision, the people perish. All right? And the, the, the ancient people used to use uh, a pharmaceutical preparation that they believed would soothe tender or swollen eyes. And they would use this eye salve to put it on their eyes to, to help them with these things. And it would restore their vision, or at least supposedly it would be. And I think that's what Jesus is referring to here, uh, getting a spiritual insight and understanding of his word. Certainly they could see physically. They were not literally blind, but uh, they evidently were unable to perceive these, these truths from the word of God. They were evidently unable to understand the truths of the word of God. And so Jesus is urging them to exchange their wealth their physical wealth for a spiritual understanding. You've got everything, at least from the outside standard. You've got gold. You've got, you've got all the stuff that you need. But what you really need to buy from me is gold tried in the fire, the white raiments, the ISAB. You need those things. How can a church recapture their spiritual values, the spiritual virtues, their spiritual vision? Obviously, they had lost all of those things. There's one simple word. And that is repent. He says that in verse number 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be, be zealous, therefore, and repent. And many times, repentance is the very last thing that a sinner wants to do. In fact, keep your finger over there and turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. It's the very last thing that a saint wants to do many times as well is to repent. We'd rather do anything than repent, Right? Repentance means not just sorry for what you did, but it means a change of attitude, a change of direction. I'm not going to do this anymore. That's what real repentance is all about. That's clearly the reasoning behind this verse in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Why does God have to chasten us? Because we don't naturally want to repent, Right? If the second you did something wrong, our natural instinct was to repent, we'd never have to be chastened, right? We'd never have to worry about uh, God punishing us for doing the things that are wrong. But because the Lord loves us, he chastens us, and he scourges every son whom he receiveth. Why? Because we don't naturally want to do those things on our own. And he's commanding this church, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. That word translated to be zealous literally means heated or boiling over. And if you think about this, what he's talking about in this passage is, you're lukewarm. I would rather have you cold or hot. And what you need to do is get hot. He urged them to get on fire, repent of that spiritually lethargic condition that they were in. Be zealous, therefore, he says, and repent. So to this deluded church, back in Revelation chapter 3, God gives a definite choice, and lastly, he gives them a dual challenge. Uh, the Lord's making a statement that's become one of the best-known texts in the Bible. I mean, I think John 3.16 is the best-known, and there might be another couple that are similar to that, but, but Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 is one of the best-known verses in the Bible. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Now, this dual challenge, first of all, is to the sinners in the congregation. The Lord is right outside the church at Laodicea, pleading for individuals in that church to give him his rightful place. That's the primary meaning of this verse, but, but preachers for centuries have applied that verse to the unsaved, and I don't think they're wrong in applying that verse to the unsaved. Um, in such a materialistic church, there's no doubt was a lot of unsaved people who were part of that church, right? I mean, if everybody was saved, there would at least be half of them you would think that would be on fire for God, but what happened is, and I forget exactly who it was. It was one of the older preachers, Tory or, or, or um, Tozer or one of those guys, said, I estimate that, that upwards of 70% of the people in my church are not even saved. Now, you've got to remember that this was back in a day when everybody went to church, everybody was moral, everybody knew that, that their job was to be in church, and, and, and I, think that's, I think it's changed now. I would think that in a, in a, in a good Christian or a good Baptist church that the number would be higher, I would hope, because people, who, people don't just go to church anymore today. You know, but who knows? I mean, there's, there's, uh, you think about some of these huge churches around here and, and you talk to some of these people at their door, or you talk to them when you're, when you're just, you know, in conversation with them and they seem to have no understanding of what salvation right. even is, right. you know? So, I mean, I think if you walked into the doors of some of these big churches around here, it would probably be upwards of 80 or 90% of the people in the church that are not saved. Amen. Just because you're in a church, just because you're in a good church doesn't mean that you're saved. And I think that's one of the reasons that he is making this, this plea to the church at Laodicea. I'm standing at the door knocking. There's a lot of people in your church that have never let me into their hearts. They're not even saved. No wonder your church is so lukewarm. Half the people don't even know me as their savior. But what a tremendous view it gives us of the Lord Jesus Christ, the patient, pleading, uh, promising savior. He is there standing at the door knocking. Now, there was a, a, a guy named Holman Hunt. He, I think he best captured the, the gospel appeal that we find here in this text. And he painted a masterpiece, a picture of, of Jesus Christ as the light of the world. And he pictured, he, he painted in this picture, the Lord wearing a crown of thorns, standing outside of a human heart, uh, patiently knocking. And, 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 and basically calling for admittance into uh, this heart. And this, this painting is now in, um, I believe it's in um, St. Paul's Cathedral in London. But when this, when this painting was first revealed, I mean, it, you know, critics came to comment on the work, and everybody was just amazed at how beautiful this painting was. But one of them came up to him and, and said, Mr. Hunt, you painted a masterpiece, but, but you made a very serious mistake. He said, you forgot to paint a door handle on the front of that door. And he said, I didn't forget to paint the door handle on that door. This door only opens from the inside. Amen. And that's exactly what it is. God, you know, he could, he could walk in through the heart right now if he wanted to force himself in there. He could do it, but he gives us the choice. I'm standing at the door knocking. There's only a handle on the inside. You have to open that door and let me in. Christ makes three promises to those people who will open their door of their heart to him, and you see that in, in verse number 20 as well. I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice, I will come into him. He enters the believer's heart. He makes that heart his home. He says, secondly, and will sup with him. 
He takes what we put at his disposal, and like he did with the, the five loaves and two fish, he makes it into something that's so much bigger than we can even imagine. He, he blesses it. He multiplies it. He helps us to be a blessing to others. And then he says, and he with me. He promises that if we open our heart to him, then he'll open heaven to us. And boy, what a tremendous, tremendous promise in that verse. I stand at the door and knock. And so that verse, I think we can very clearly say, is to sinners in the congregation. But the second part of that dual challenge is to the saints that were in that congregation in Laodicea. Jesus had admonished the church at Laodicea to get on fire, to repent of their lukewarmness. I think, you know, that, that the primary thought in this verse is that he's standing outside the doors of this church, knocking and saying, please let me come in. Let me do something in your church. Let the power of the Holy Spirit be on this congregation. Let the Holy Spirit get in here and do the work that he wants to do. I don't think there's any, anything wrong with, you know, I'm standing at the door of your heart knocking, trying to get in. I want to, I want to be your savior. But, but I think the primary purpose of this, especially because we're talking here to a church full of people who should have been saved, talking to a church that was one of, of his own. I do believe that he was standing there trying to knock on their heart's door, but I think he was standing outside the church. He got pushed out a long time ago when they started letting the, the wealth and the programs and the, and the machinery and all of the things that had taken over this church that made it lukewarm pushed him right out the back door. And he's standing there saying, I want to come in. I want to be a part of this church. I want to do something with this church. Just let me come in and do it. And that only comes after the repentance that we see in the verse before that. Churches are made up of individual Christians. And the greater need is for backslidden, lukewarm Christians to invite Christ back into the fellowship in their lives. The last word that we have here in Revelation chapter 3 is to the overcomer. He says in verse 21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto these churches, uh, unto the churches. Turn over to Revelation 20. I'm going to get to there in just a second, but I, I think this is pretty interesting. Uh, could there be a higher incentive than to be able to sit on the throne uh, with Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, uh, Paul refers to being seated together in heaven with Christ in Ephesians chapter 2. I think that talks about our position in Christ. But I think what is implied here is that there is an actuality of sitting on the throne with Jesus Christ. For those who have faithfully overcome the world, sin, the flesh, uh, lukewarmness. Because if you think about this, in, in Revelation chapter 20... He clearly gives us the promise of ruling and reigning with him. Verse number, verse number four. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Verse six. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. See, I, th I think for those who have been particularly faithful and, and dedicated, there's an actual privilege of sitting on the throne with Jesus Christ. You have to take the Bible literally. Amen. Now, there, there's, there's th some things that are meant to be figurative in the Bible, but our first and primary interpretation ought to be to take the Bible literally. Right? And look what he says there in verse number 21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. 
Okay, we can say that that's figurative. Think just, just theoretically, that's figurative. All right, we're going to reign with God. He's, you know, he's on the throne. We're reigning with him. But then look what he says to clarify that. Even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Who is the first martyr of the church? Stephen, right? What did he say that he saw as he was being martyred? Christ standing at the right hand of the throne of God, right? Which means that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, but because Stephen was martyred for the cause of Jesus Christ, Christ actually stood for his child as he was being martyred, right? But this is a literal throne that we're talking about. And so if Christ is saying that I'm set down at the right hand of my th the throne of my father, a literal throne, and he's saying, you're going to sit with me on my throne just like I sit on the throne with my father, then we have to say that it's nothing but literal. And what a tremendous, tremendous privilege that would be to be able to sit on the throne with Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, it, it might not be forever, but for a time at least, maybe, maybe kind of akin to getting our picture taken with the president or something like that, you know. Uh, it's a privilege. You don't get your picture taken with the president every day. Uh, and you have to do something specifically, you know, usually specifically uh, um, noteworthy to be able to sit next to the president. But it, 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 I think what it implies is, is a rank and, uh, and an authority in ruling with him in that day. And so his father granted him that privilege, and he's going to grant that privilege to us. Now, at the end of chapter 3, this, the book kind of takes a, a turn. And you look at the first verse of chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, the first voice, and come up hither. I will show thee things which must be hereafter. So what we have in the first three chapters of Revelation is something that he was looking back on, the churches, right? The things that were, or at least that were there at that point. But then he changes a direction, and he said, now come up here. I want to show you some things that are going to happen in the future. Um, so the message changes here in this book, and we're not going to get into that, obviously, but throughout these seven messages to the church, and we looked at all of the different churches, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Pergamos, Smyrna, uh, Ephesus, those are the seven churches. But it's, it's pretty clear that the, the principle that those who faithfully serve their Lord and Savior and King will be awarded great and precious privileges. All right? He says that at the end of every verse that he took, to him that overcometh I will give. And he talks about different things that he's going to give. He says the same thing in here. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. What an incentive it is to make sure that we are living individual Christian lives that are pleasing to God, but as a church that's pleasing to God. You know, live as a church that's, that is living according to how God wants us to live. We want to bring glory to him. That's why we do what we do. We're not doing this because we're trying to build a huge, great congregation or anything like that. If that's what God wants that will bring him glory the most, then great, we'll do it. If he wants us to stay, stay this size forever and that brings him the most glory, then great, we'll do it. We want to be a church that brings glory to God by every single thing that we do. And so all of these things that we've talked about, the way that we do that is to take heed of the strengths of the churches that he points out. Every word, if you believe that every word in the Bible is there for a reason, then that means every word is important. And if he gives us all of these strengths of these churches, then that means there are things that he wants us to emulate. Those are strengths that we ought to be, uh, that we ought to have as strengths in our church and in our Christian lives too. 
And if he's given us the weaknesses of these church, then he's saying these are things that you need to look out for. As Christians individually and as a church, you need to watch out for these weaknesses. So if, if, if we want to be a church that brings glory to God, boy, we've looked at a lot of different churches. And hopefully as you read back through these first few chapters of Revelation, it'll mean something to you now. And, and you'll remember some of these things that we've talked about. But it wouldn't be a bad idea to go back and reread those every few months. Or at least once a year, you know, to remind us of what God wants us to do. We want to be a church that is strong for the glory of God. We are establishing a church. I don't know when you can say you're established. Is it after five years? Is it after 10? Are we already established? I don't know. But these are things that we want to continue to do. We've got to emulate these strengths, and we've got to be careful of these weaknesses so that we don't fall into the, the pit that so many churches that get to be 15, 20, 30 years old do. Just done it this way forever, so this is the way we're going to keep doing it. No, we want to be a church that has fresh power. We want to be a church that has the power of God in our life. A church that, that God feels comfortable meeting with us in here on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights and anytime we're here gathered around the Word of God. We want Him to be welcome here. And the way that's going to happen is if we emulate the strengths and be careful of the weaknesses. What a sad church to end on, really, you know? Laodicea church that could have been something because they had everything. But in the end, they ended up being nothing but nauseating to God because instead of being hot like he wanted them to be, they were lukewarm. And they said, boy, I don't want anything but to spew you out of my mouth. What a sad commentary of a church. Let's make sure we're not a church that God wants to spew out of his mouth. Let's stay hot. Let's stay Christians that are on fire for God, doing something for God. That's church that God's going to be pleased with. And that's what we want. We want to bring glory to him. And we want to establish a church that is strong for his glory. We'll work on it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for the examples that we have of these churches in the Bible and for how clear the word of God is about what you want us to do, how you want us to live. And God, I pray that you would just help us as a church to establish uh, a place that you're comfortable with, establish a place, regardless of what society thinks about us. Sure, we want to be accepted. Sure, we want people to, to feel like uh, they can be uh, welcomed here and everything else. But more importantly, we want you to be welcomed here. So I pray that you'd help us not to compromise, help us not to, to bend to, the, uh, to, to what society says we have to be. But God, I pray that you help us to bend to what the Word of God says that we should be. And God, that above everything, we'd be able to establish a church here that is strong for your glory. Thank you for what you do for us. I pray that you would give us safety as we go from here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, we're dismissed.